This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Lexicon Valley is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Secret Life of Words, English Words, and Their Origins. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. The following podcast contains explicit language. From Washington, D.C., this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm Bob Garfield with Mike Volo, and today, episode number 64, titled Yada Yada Yada, Europeans Don't Get Seinfeld, wherein we discuss why the classic American sitcom doesn't translate. Hey, Mikey. Hey, Bobby. How you doing, buddy? Splendid. Thank you. And your own self? I'm great. I'm great. Bob, I think you know this, but I'm that guy who, for any given moment in life, for any of the many absurdities or indignities that afflict us, I might say, well, you know, there's a Seinfeld episode about that. I've seen every episode, probably multiple times, and I could pull from my mind a plot or subplot, and there are many, that maps at least approximately onto a given situation. I may not always say it, but I'm often thinking there's a Seinfeld episode about that. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, there's not really any other show about which you can say that, right? Mm, No, not right, but uh, go on, proceed. (laughs) Wait, why is that not right? Well, because by definition, situation comedies focus on somehow familiar situations that we laugh at because we can identify with them. Seinfeld, I grant you, floated situations that often weren't spoken of, and that was its genius, like what to do when you encounter a woman with man hands, you know? Uh, (laughs) It's not something that was on Father Knows Best or The Cosby Show, but they still fundamentally operate with the same formula. I don't recall anybody ever in my presence saying, you know, there's an episode of The Big Bang Theory about that. Or, hey, there's an episode of Third Rock from the Sun about that. I mean, I suppose if you were in a candy factory, right, and the conveyor belt was moving too fast and the workers were shoving chocolates in their mouths, you might turn to the person next to you and say, you know, there's an episode of (laughs) I Love Lucy about that. (laughs) But it's not a common refrain. And I've always attributed this quality of Seinfeld to what I thought was its universality, right? That it somehow tapped into a deeper substrate of the human condition. Universality, I guess so. But to me, the miracle of Seinfeld, the miracle, and all credit to Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld for this, is that it did 
have this broad appeal from border to border, coast to coast, even though it was so deeply rooted in this neurotic New York, basically Jewish sensibility. And it's just hard to imagine how these anxious, unpleasant people struck (laughs) such a chord across this vast expanse of America. (laughs) That reminds me of the Woody Allen quote from Annie Hall when Alvy Singer, played by Woody Allen, is talking to his friend Rob, I think after they played racquetball. And he says, you know, don't you know that the whole country sees New York as a bunch of communist, left-wing, Jewish, homosexual pornographers? I think of us that way, and I live here. (laughs) Exactly. And Seinfeld and Woody Allen have achieved, I guess, the same miracle, although Seinfeld to a much greater degree than Woody Allen ever did. It's really hard to understand, especially especially since there's you know such deep reserves of suspicion and resentment and even bigotry towards this very same demographic, the smarty pants New Yorker. It's it's amazing. Yeah, somehow everybody got Seinfeld, right? Stipulating that Seinfeld was a big hit in Iowa and Alabama, just as it was in New York and LA. And assuming, as I have, that it's drawing from a well of humor that is somehow cross-cultural, then you might ask, so how does it play in other countries? And the answer is, it doesn't, really. Italy, Germany, Belgium, the Netherlands, a number of European countries have aired Seinfeld in translation, and it just doesn't work. No matter what day of the week, They put it on whatever time slot they shuffle it into, and some of these countries have really moved it around. It just doesn't succeed beyond a small cult following. No, that doesn't shock me. Although, although, understanding how Seinfeld somehow managed to transcend regional and cultural barriers here, I would have been perfectly prepared to accept its popularity in in Europe and Asia and Latin America just because it's so fucking funny, because the premises are so unexpected and so delicious and weirdly identifiable, even if they're populated by those jerks who were the central characters in the series. You know, I I guess I'm not surprised, and I wouldn't have been surprised if the opposite were true. Right. So the question is, well, what's going on here? Why, when so much of American media and many TV shows do succeed in other countries. Why does Seinfeld seem to be international proof somehow? So as part of a larger research project, a woman named Elke Van Castle, who I believe is herself Dutch, asked both Dutch and American viewers what Seinfeld was about. These were young people, people in their 20s to early 30s, I believe. And the Americans said things like, quote, Seinfeld is a show about reality. It's about everything we deal with every day. The little things people never talk about, but everybody knows about. Somebody said the tacit assumptions about the way people are supposed to act. Dutch people, on the other hand, quote, emphasized that on Seinfeld, everything is blown out of proportion and the humor is often over the top. Van Castle conjectures that language, and in particular, the difficulty of translating humor that is rooted so strongly in language, as much of the humor in Seinfeld is, 
that that is a big part of the problem. And she points out that in many European countries, dubbing is preferred to subtitles. Why that is the case, I will never know. I can't stand dubbing personally. But that being the case, you can't hear the original English dialogue. Even if you do speak English, as many Europeans do, you can't read the translations, however imperfect they may be. And so she speculates that, quote, even more of the show's humor is lost in translation. Well, listen, before you pick up that thread, I don't think that those observations she attributes to the Dutch audience are mutually exclusive. Seinfeld is about tiny little things that we all recognize and don't necessarily talk about as a rule. And also, (laughs) they are blown out of proportion. So, I mean, I think that actually defines the show. An entire episode on close talking. Uh, It's not, (laughs) you know, people are irritated or put off or threatened by others who invade their personal space. But it's not something that we'd spend 30 minutes discussing, and Seinfeld did. Well, it would be if Judge Reinhold was doing it to you. (laughs) But yes, point taken, many of the situations, although familiar, are exaggerated. They are presented hyperbolically. But I think Van Castle's point is that that is what foreign viewers are taking away from this, not the subtleties. And I'll quote from her. She says, every episode of Seinfeld consists of multiple layers of humor. In addition to the most obvious forms of humor, slapstick and visual jokes, there are jokes about social etiquette, political correctness, and the awkward and embarrassing situations the characters get themselves into. There are also funny comments about trivialities and the stuff of everyday life, witticisms about social relationships and dating, sarcasm and self-mockery. In addition, there are jokes that are funny because they are recurrent. Hello, Newman. References to current events and pop culture, taboo-breaking comedy, underlying layers of satire and social criticism, and finally, one-liners, word jokes, and puns. All of these layers are part of the Seinfeld experience, but as my research shows, not all of them are perceived by a foreign audience. Well, okay, right. Some of it, a lot of it, I guess, just doesn't translate. Although the properties that she says don't translate are also found in, let's say, The Simpsons, for example, which is even thicker with pop cultural references that you would expect to completely go over the heads of uh, Europeans, for example, right? And yet it's, uh, it's a huge hit. Well, I would push back a little bit on your Simpsons comparison because I think a lot of the humor in The Simpsons is very visual. Yes, there's a lot that's lost on a foreign audience, but I think the fact that it is a cartoon, that puts it in an entirely different category and makes it much more accessible. I should give my Bob's claimer here, which is, as always, while I may be able to express a thought with some sense of authority, I have no supporting data whatsoever. (laughs) And fundamentally, (laughs) don't know what I'm talking about. So somebody who does know what they're talking about, at least more than we do, is a journalist named Jennifer Armstrong. She is working on a book about Seinfeld. And she recently spoke with the woman who was responsible for translating all 180 episodes of Seinfeld into German. And remember, it never really caught on in Germany. So let's try to figure out 
why and how much of this had to do with the very talky, very languagey kind of nature of Seinfeld. So let's bring her on. Hey, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So before we talk about why Seinfeld never really caught on in Europe, or at least Germany, let's talk a little bit about why it succeeded so well in English here in America. And I think any conversation about the lexicon of Seinfeld, the language of Seinfeld, has to begin with the catchphrases. That is at least in part some of the success of the show. Absolutely. They tended to generate probably at least at their height, an average of one catchphrase a week. Some episodes had kind of multiple contenders. <laughs> they were often actually surprised by which ones caught on. Sometimes I would talk to the writers and they would say, you know, I really thought this was going to catch on instead of the yada yada or whatever, you know. People love to repeat them kind of almost like a religion, like an incantation, you know, like, oh, you know, you speak my language, you know Seinfeld lines. And they are mentioned yada, yada, yada. Uh, Spongeworthy, they're real and they're spectacular. Wait, 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 hold on. Spongeworthy, that's when Elaine uh, <laughs> had only a few remaining contraceptive sponges and she had to decide whether a guy measured up to using yes. her last remaining supply. Okay, yeah. Exactly. And you can see how that would catch on because I, I've found that most of the ones that tend to catch on are very useful. I thought you said it was imminent. Yeah, it was, but then I just couldn't decide if he was really sponge-worthy. <laughs> sponge-worthy? Yeah, Jerry, I have to conserve these sponges. But you like this guy. Isn't that what the sponges are for? Yes, yes. Before they went off the market. But I mean, now I've got to reevaluate my whole screening process. I can't afford to waste any of them. You know, you're nuts with these sponges. Not that there's anything wrong with that was probably one of the first big ones, which allowed people to express their confusion about people being gay. They're caught up in the gossip value and the speculation, but they have to have the disclaimer that, of course, they can voice no objection. Exactly. And do your parents know? Know what? My parents? They don't know what's going on. <laughs> oh, God, you're that girl in the coffee shop that was eavesdropping on us. I knew you looked familiar. Oh, no! Oh. No! There's been a big misunderstanding here. Yeah, yeah. We did that whole thing for your benefit. We knew you were eavesdropping. That's why my friend said all that. It was on purpose. We're not gay. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, of course not. I mean, it's fine if that's who you are. Absolutely. I mean, I have many gay friends. My father's gay. Look, I... Jennifer, you said that some of the best ones are ones that have actual real-world applicability. Shrinkage? I was just going to say that. That's so true. <laughs> that came up in the episode where somebody sees George naked after he's been swimming in a pool and mm -hmm. he is less endowed than he would want to be. Because he says of a urological phenomenon that, you know, has nothing to do with his actual dimensions. Well, ordinarily, I wouldn't mind. But. But what? Well, I just got back from swimming in the pool <laughs> and the water was cold. Uh. You mean shrinkage? Yes. <laughs> Significant shrinkage. So you, you feel you were shortchanged? Yes. Speaking of 
things that allow us to talk about maybe slightly risque things, you know, in a way that was acceptable in national television. Uh, Master of My Domain was also a very big one, <laughs> which referred to the ability to abstain from pleasing oneself in private. Yes, they never actually invoked the word masturbation in that episode. Never say the word masturbation or any other slang words for it, actually. Incredible. Mm -hmm. But are you still master of your domain? I am king of the county. You? Lord of the manor. I'm queen of the castle. How is it that Seinfeld managed to generate all of these catchphrases when show after show, sitcom after sitcom in the past, you can maybe recall one or two in its total run? Yeah, exactly. It used to be other shows have kind of one character who maybe gets a catchphrase like dynamite or something like that. What you talking about, Willis? Exactly. That one character says over and over. Manergy Krebs work work. <laughs> what Seinfeld did was they came up with one catchphrase that they repeated in one episode. And it's almost like the characters would self-consciously realize, oh, that's funny. I mm -hmm. want to keep playing with that because, you know, one of the characters is a comedian. So that makes sense. They kind of keep playing with it throughout the 22 minutes. It's like it keeps coming up in different contexts. You see the different ways it can work. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's no. anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Not at all. Not that there's anything wrong with that. No, not at all. Not that there's anything wrong with that. 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 And then they kind of retire it. By the end of that episode, it's not like there are episodes later, you know, in subsequent seasons where someone will say, oh, shrinkage. Remember when we said that? Right. Or, you know, they don't keep bringing up Master of My Domain, which they could. You could see that. They don't do a lot of callbacks. Like the biggest callbacks come for the finale. And that's the finale. And that's it. So that was how they kind of like got it in your head made you go to the water cooler the next day and use it with all your friends, and then they'd move on to the next one. I never really thought about how they play with those catchphrases. And of course, they weren't catchphrases at the time you were initially viewing it, but they play with them in a very self-conscious way. There's a lot of linguistic breaking of the fourth wall, in a sense. I'm thinking of these pretzels are making me thirsty, for mm -hmm. example. I love that one. That one has a little bit of a different thing going on. It's not actually useful. Although I have actually said that on People numerous say occasions. It. Sure. And you could say it and it could be true, but it's not like shrinkage or something like that where it allows you to talk about something taboo. It's just something people like to say. And I think it's the rhythm of it. These pretzels are making me thirsty. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a little waltz. And I have this theory that a lot of the rhythmic parts of Seinfeld's language kind of have Yiddish undertones to them. You know, it sounds mm -hmm. a little bit like Yiddish, which both Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David, the creators of the show, came from Jewish New York households. So that's not surprising. In fact, Jennifer, one of the Ur-Jewish Borscht Belt jokes is about someone on a train, Jewish man or woman, sighing repeatedly, I'm so toasty. I'm so toasty. I'm so toasty, until some goyish uh, seatmate finally gets up and goes to the dining car and brings back a glass of club soda and gives it to him or her, only to hear this. I was so toasty. 
I was so toast. <laughs> and uh, who knows, maybe the uh, these pretzels are making me thirsty was a kind of nod to that. I wouldn't be surprised at all. And they really, they had such a flair for language on this show and rhythm specifically. They had a very musical ear for comedy. So Larry David had a neighbor named Kramer who was a lot like the Kramer you see in the show. And when he was creating it, he was at first doing what most people would expect, and and he was trying to change the name, right? So he's calling him Bender and Kessler. <laughs> and so there are different versions of the script that actually exist with this other name, and you can hear them use Kessler once if you watch the pilot closely. But they decided Kramer's just funnier. Everybody knows that the K sound is funny, and I can see how even Kramer is funnier than Kessler, yeah. which kind of falls flat. Yeah. And, you know, Bob, you mentioned that Borscht Belt joke because of the word thirsty. But I think the larger point there is that rhythm and timing of the dialogue and the language in Seinfeld is so crucial to its humor. And that may explain, in part at least, why it doesn't really translate very well. Let's take a short break and mention our sponsor this week, The Great Courses, and in particular, the course called The Secret Life of Words, English Words and Their Origins, which is taught by Professor Anne Curzan, who was on Lexicon Valley, this podcast, talking about the idea of gender in language, and in particular, how there are some pairs of words in English, for example, spinster and bachelor, or governor and governess, in which the male of the pair takes on very positive tones, while the female, quote, female of the pair becomes more and more pejorative over time. We did a series of episodes about gender in language and in grammar, and I believe she appeared on two of them. She gets into some of that in this course, The Secret Life of Words. In fact, there's an episode called Spinster Bachelor Guy Dude, and it's great. The Great Courses, by the way, is celebrating their 25th anniversary. They now have more than 500 courses on topics ranging from linguistics to psychology to physics. The Great Courses is offering a special limited-time offer on that course, The Secret Life of Words. You can get up to 80% off the original price if you go to thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. That's thegreatcourses.com slash lexicon. Okay, back to our conversation with Jennifer Armstrong. There's a way in which language is used very inventively and very smartly, I think, in the writing. I'm thinking of an episode in which Jerry is dating his maid, and they end up deciding that not only is their professional relationship over, but their romantic relationship is over too. And they communicate this to each other in a series of parallel one-liners. You know, I don't think I want to be your girlfriend or your maid. So is this a breakup quitting? Yeah. Don't ever call me or hire me again. Oh, yeah? Well, then we're through. And you're fired. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's a lot of language stuff sort of going on there, right? So you have to have the syntax, you have to have the structure of the sentences, you have to have the right words to go there and not have them be too clunky, you know, because that's another thing is they all have to kind of fit in the same space as the original. So a lot of these things can be very complicated. Plus, you have things like girlfriend, which different cultures construe differently, breakups, all of these things, you know, can trip up 
having to translate this to be funny to other people in other languages and cultures. Well, let's talk about a specific translation dilemma. I'm thinking of the episode in which Jerry is dating a woman whose name he either doesn't remember or never quite heard to begin with. Mm -hmm. And he has one piece of evidence. He knows that she told him (laughs) her name rhymes with a part of the female anatomy. And she used to get teased about it when she was a child. Jerry and George and the others are trying to figure out what her name could possibly be. And they're speculating. I think one of them throws out Bovary, right? <laughs> it's my favorite it guess. R- rhymes with ovary. <laughs> my, f- my favorite guess is Jerry's. And the way he says it. Mulva? <laughs> you don't know my name, do you? <laughs> yes, I do. What is it? It, it rhymes with a female body part. What is it? Mulva? Gipple? Loyola? There's a lot going on here now for a translator because, first of all, those names are ipso facto funny in English, right? And they might not be in, say, German. But then also... Jerry does finally remember what her name is at the very end. And as the viewer, you have to fill in the blank of the word that it then rhymes with. And so the name he remembers is Dolores, which, of course, we all know rhymes with clitoris. That doesn't work in German. No, you you can't just throw in the equivalents in a case like this. This is an extremely complicated case. So what the German translator did was she had to really think about this for a while and try a lot of different options, you know, because they need to be real names that human beings could have. Mm-hmm. And they need to also rhyme with parts of the female anatomy. Although you you can take some liberties there because, after all, Mulva. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what about Bovary? I mean, Bovary is not a real name that Americans are giving to their children across the nation. See, but that's part of what makes that so funny in English is that I agree. They're, they're thinking first of the parts of the female anatomy and then they're trying to back engineer a female name. Right, right. And these are like close. You could be named these things, right? And I feel like probably there is a child somewhere in Brooklyn now named Bovary. <laughs> right. But you know, it's a lot to do. And these are the kinds of jokes that made it particularly difficult to translate. In the case of Sabine Sebastian, who did the translation of Seinfeld in Germany and was a huge fan of the show and loved it and really wanted to do right by it. She tried really hard. And in this case, she did actually come up with a solution, which is that the woman's name is, I'm probably going to butcher any German, but Ushi which apparently rhymes with mushy, which is apparently a German slang term for vagina. And Ushi is a, is like a nickname for Ursula. Right? For Ursula, right. I did check all of this just because I was like, is Ushi a real thing? Like, you know, but apparently it is a fairly common name in Germany for women. So it worked. But that's not an easy solution to come up with. And I would even argue, possibly, it's still not as funny there's a subtlety that's missing, right? Because a clitoris is funnier than <laughs> saying it on national television anyway, is funnier than saying, you know, 
a slang word for vagina. But they never said it. They never actually said clitoris, right? Right. But being able to make that reference, I mean... (laughs) And the connection between Dolores and clitoris is just, you know, 39% funnier than Ushi and Mushi. It is, Because it's just (laughs) 39% more absurd. I don't know how Mushi plays in Germany, but if it is simply a slang for vagina, that's a different joke, right? Because clitoris has a kind of double-edged humor about it. It's both clinical and, at least in its shortened form, clit, very sexually charged, right? Mm -hmm. And so it plays in multiple layered ways as a funny word and then as a word that you're now trying to imagine rhymes with her name. There's one other funny thing about this, too, which is that apparently in the original script when they were writing this, they had called her Chloris. And, you know, they do audience warm-up before any live studio audience show. And when the comedian did the warm-up, he asked an audience member to guess what her final answer might be. And someone guessed Dolores, and they went, oh, that's funnier. Change it. (laughs) Of course. So they actually changed it on the spot because it is funnier. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It rhymes better. It's a truer rhyme. In addition to wordplay, which can be really difficult for a translator, there's also many pop culture references in Seinfeld. I'm thinking of an episode in which George, I think he's trying to avoid being broken up with, and so he's not answering his phone. And you hear the answering machine pick up multiple times, and it's him singing to the tune of the theme from The Greatest American Hero. How could that possibly be? play in Germany. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and this is, we're not talking about a massive worldwide phenomenon, the greatest American hero. You know what I mean? Like, Although I it should remember have it. Been. Oh my God. I loved it. I was a kid at the time. I could sing that theme song. It did break out as a single though, didn't it? I think it did. I think you're right. Cause it's pretty catchy and I've been singing it. Believe it or not. George I'm walking up. Yes, yes. It's better in his version. Believe it or not, George isn't at home. Please leave a message at the beep. I must be out or I'd pick up the phone. Where could I be? Believe it or not, I'm not home. So did they just translate that song in German? They actually did translate that song kind of almost word for word in German, which is incredible. What other choice did they have, really? You know, they're stuck with this answering machine message. They can't come up with a whole new TV theme song. That would be extraordinary. Hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, Jennifer. (laughs) I don't understand. The reason they dub things on German television to begin with is that German... Language requires, you know, I don't know, some significant percentage more characters Mm -hmm. than most other languages that it's translating. Mm -hmm. So there's literally no room on the screen for the subtitles. (laughs) How can you dub into the space of a song a German literal translation? It doesn't sound possible. It's really crammed in there. It's actually very funny to listen to because you can hear the guy like, you know, cramming as much as he can and almost getting the tunes a little off for the same reason because like the rhythms of the words are different so you can't quite get it there. (laughs) What the... Sie ist lahm oder nicht, 
Ich muss wohl weg sein, sonst wird mich ja rangehen. Wo halte ich mich wohl auf? Glaubt es oder nicht, ich bin nicht da. I'd like to posit another reason why perhaps Seinfeld doesn't translate very well. There's a academic named Amy McWilliams who points out that the plot structure of Seinfeld, more so than any other sitcom, has a main plot and then a subplot or subplots. Or two, usually two. That eventually connect or interweave with the Mm -hmm. main plot. Such as when Kramer is inventing giant sneakers or something and also has to have dental work with... (laughs) with Novocaine and also yes. runs into Mel Torme yes. in a cab and it all comes yeah. together. Oh, what a courageous young man. Right, exactly. And that's what Amy McWilliams points out is that often the kicker at the very end of these episodes has to do with the way that these plots are now intersecting. Mm-hmm. And for a viewer who's not a native English speaker to either be watching this dubbed or with subtitles, you have to pay close attention because sometimes the way in which these things interweave hinges on the dialogue and on the language. Also, just watching something in another language, you're going to miss things that the person watching in their native language are going to pick up. Everything in Seinfeld is kind of based on trusting the audience to be a little smarter than most sitcoms had trusted their audiences to be before that. They're hyper-observant, and they're proxies for our own abilities as observers, but they trust us to at least credit them for the aha, yeah, but of course, mm-hmm. close talkers. I've, I've been aware of the phenomenon. I never really articulated it before. They trust you to be on track with their amazing ability to see the, the world around us, but you know, very close to us. Exactly. And so when you get to the end and there's this great punchline that brings everything together, you'd completely lose it if you had missed any of the strands of the plot before that, which is easy to do in another language with Seinfeld. You know, one problem that might be particular to Germany, but perhaps not, is that there are many references throughout the series to Nazism or Mm -hmm. some even very explicit parodies of Hitler and of the Hitler cant. And, of course, the soup Nazi. Right, and, yes. of course, the soup Nazi. This must have been something that Sabine Sebastian had to really grapple with. I mean, making Nazi jokes in Germany is not really okay. Yeah, especially she told me that even more so back when she was originally doing this 20 years ago, that people have come along a little on this, but at the time, very sensitive still. Too soon. And yeah, way too soon, probably still a little too soon now. It was an ongoing argument that she had with the editor she was working with on these episodes, who apparently kind of was like her boss. And so often he wanted to take some stuff out and just leave it there, you know, because if you're doing dubbing, that's it's one of the great advantages of dubbing. You could just not do what they said in the original joke. Right. Occasionally, she won this battle because there was no choice. There's a bit that Jerry does, a stand-up bit, where he's talking about how in the movies with Nazis, he's noticed that they have different kinds of Heils depending on the circumstance. Like, there's a casual <laughs> Heil, and then there's, like, the official Heil. So, but the thing is that he does the gesture 
when he's talking about it. So she was like, ha, huh, I have to keep it because nothing else is going to, you know, I can't be like, he's saying stop sign or something, you know, like that's just not going to work. You either have to edit out the visuals right. or you yeah. have to dub it as is. I'm sorry. This is a bit off the subject. But do you remember Dick Sean's Heil in uh, The Producers? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Took springtime for Hitler. The most casual Heil ever. <laughs> I love the idea of the casual Heil. Heil Hitler, baby. Hey, Heil, whatever. <laughs> so they did kind of have some difficulties. And, you know, the funny thing about Seinfeld is there's a fair amount of pretty subtle Jewish humor, too. So there was always this, are even people going to know that this is a Jewish reference? There were a lot of tiny little things like this to grapple with when they were doing the translation, which Sabine really felt like kind of ultimately hurt the translation. There's a critic named David Mark who points out that there's a kind of paradoxical tension in the character and in the show. He says that Jerry's sense of humor, quote, the very asset that has allowed him entree to an advantaged life among the Goyim remains rooted in a marginal point of view that grows out of exclusion. Jerry needs exclusion. And without his Jewishness, he is unexcludable. I definitely think there's a Jewish sensibility to the humor overall on the show. And there's a lot of Jewish cultural, you know, references, American Jewish cultural references, mm -hmm. specifically New York. When they first started the show, I mean, everybody knows this, that famously at NBC, they said it was too New York and too Jewish, which is almost redundant because whenever they say too New York, they really mean yeah, that's too cool. Jewish, you know, and they thought nobody outside of New York Jews is going to like this or think it's funny because, it, you know, there's things like the marble rye. Right. The parents who are obviously the Costanzas, who are obviously Jewish, but are named Costanza and only eventually sort of maybe admit to being Jewish, though not explicitly. So there's a lot of this like having it both ways, I think, in Seinfeld that actually ends up working. You know, the specificity of the marble rye is funny. Yeah. It's funnier than, like, I don't know, a loaf of wheat bread. Oh, yeah. Much funnier. <laughs> so at this stage, if I may, I would like to do something I seldom do on this show, and, it's, and, and that is express a kind of optimism. And we've been focusing on what about Seinfeld just doesn't quite scan in Germany and elsewhere in Europe and around the world. And I would like to pivot to right back where we began – and to marvel at why it has been so nearly universally embraced here in the United States of America. And what I, what, what I want to say is that <laughs> we're so polarized and we think that these culture wars are so divisive. But I think that Seinfeld somehow points to that we do have a shared cultural experience so profound that even these Jewy smartasses have appeal in flyover country, in the Midwest, in the red states. And it's because, however New York they may be, they are really fundamentally and uniquely American. And, you know, a European going down any of our commercial highways in any of our 50 states we'll notice that in some ways the experience doesn't change place by place, no matter how different the geography of the region. There's still the Midas mufflers. There's 
still the TGI Fridays, there's still the Chipotles, there's still the McDonald's, there's still the the Marshalls and the Macy's, and the other iconic landmarks of the American culture and economy. And it turns out that Seinfeld fits very snugly there, that its sense of humor and of irony and of absurdity is just distinctly fucking American. That's my hypothesis. That was beautiful. It's true, though. It surprised a lot of people when it first became a hit. There's something that we're all relating to. I actually think its specificity is what we love about it as Americans. It's like, no, I get that. Even if I'm not into marble rye, I get the idea behind this. And doesn't work in other places. The book that you are currently working on, Seinfeldia, will be out in 2016 by Simon & Schuster. This was great. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. Let us know what you think about Seinfeld in your native language, if you're not an English speaker, or if you are. Write to us at lexiconvalley at slate.com. That's lexiconvalley at slate.com. Follow us on Twitter at lexiconvalley and subscribe to our feed in iTunes. Some of the research that I talked about in this episode can be found in a compilation of essays called Seinfeld, Master of Its Domain, Revisiting Television's Greatest Sitcom. Joel Meyer is our managing producer and Andy Bowers, our executive producer. All right, Mikey. We done here? Yeah, we're done. Mushi, Ushi. Sie, denken Sie etwa, Sie kriegen hier Suppe? Sie verschwenden nur meine wertvolle Zeit. Aber ich will doch gar keine Suppe. Ich kann mir nämlich meine eigene Suppe kochen. Fünf Messbecher gewürfelte Champignons, einen halben Messbecher Olivenöl, drei Pfund Stangensellerie. Das ist mein Rezept für die Waldpilzsuppe. Ja, sehr richtig. Und ich habe sie alle. Kalte Gurkensuppe, die gute Kraftbrühe und Maligatoni. Maligatoni? Jetzt sind Sie fertig, Sie Suppennazi. Sie können einpacken. Hier gibt es keine Suppe mehr für Sie. Der Nächste! Ja.